0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anita Roy Dobbs, San Francisco, August 2006. The Awakening by Kate Chopin. Chapters 6 through 10. Chapter 6. Edna Pontellier could not have told why, wishing to go to the beach with Robert. She should in the first place have declined, and in the second place to have followed in obedience to one of the two contradictory impulses which impelled her. A certain light was beginning to dawn dimly within her, the light which, showing the way, forbids it. At that early period it served but to bewilder her, It moved her to dreams, to thoughtfulness, to the shadowy anguish which had overcome her the midnight when she had abandoned herself to tears. In short, Mrs. Pontellier was beginning to realize her position in the universe as a human being, and to recognize her relations as an individual to the world within and about her. This may seem like a ponderous weight of wisdom to descend upon the soul of a young woman of twenty-eight, perhaps more wisdom than the Holy Ghost is usually pleased to vouchsafe to any woman. But the beginning of things, of a world especially, is necessarily vague, tangled, chaotic, and exceedingly disturbing. How few of us ever emerge from such beginning. How many souls perish in its tumult. The voice of the sea is seductive, never ceasing, whispering, clamoring, murmuring, inviting the soul to wander for a spell in abysses of solitude, to lose itself in mazes of inward contemplation. The voice of the sea speaks to the soul. The touch of the sea is sensuous, enfolding the body in its soft, close embrace. CHAPTER Seven. Mrs. Pontellier was not a woman given to confidences, a characteristic hitherto contrary to her nature. Even as a child she had lived her own small life all within herself. At a very early period she had apprehended instinctively the dual life, that outward existence which conforms, the inward life which questions. That summer at Grand Isle, she began to loosen a little the mantle of reserve that had always enveloped her. There may have been, there must have been, influences both subtle and apparent, working in their several ways to induce her to do this, but the most obvious was the influence of Adèle Ratignolle, The excessive physical charm of the Creole had first attracted her, for Edna had a sensuous susceptibility to beauty. Then the candour of the woman's whole existence, which everyone might read, and which formed so striking a contrast to her own habitual reserve, this might have furnished a link. Who can tell what metals the gods use in forging the subtle bond, which we call sympathy? which we might as well call love. The two women went away one morning to the beach together, arm in arm, under the huge white sunshade. Edna had prevailed upon Madame Ratignolle to leave the children behind, though she could not induce her to relinquish a diminutive roll of needlework, which Adèle begged to be allowed to slip into the depths of her pocket. In some unaccountable way, they had escaped from Robert, The walk to the beach was no inconsiderable one, consisting, as it did, of a long, sandy path upon which a sporadic and tangled growth that bordered it on either side made frequent and unexpected inroads. There were acres of yellow chamomile reaching out on either hand. Further away still vegetable gardens abounded, with frequent small plantations of orange or lemon trees intervening. The dark green clusters glistened from afar in the sun. The women were both of goodly height, Madame Ratignolle possessing the more feminine and matronly figure. The charm of Edna Pontellier's physique stole insensibly upon you. The lines of her body were long, clean, and symmetrical. It was a body which occasionally fell into splendid poses. There was no suggestion of the trim stereotyped fashion plate about it a casual and indiscriminating observer in passing might not cast a second glance upon the figure but with more feeling and discernment he would have recognized the noble beauty of its modeling and the graceful severity of poise and movement which made edna pontellier different from the crowd She wore a cool muslin that morning, white, with a waving vertical line of brown running through it, also a white linen collar, and the big straw hat which she had taken from the peg outside the door. The hat rested any way on her yellow-brown hair, that waved a little, was heavy, and clung close to her head. Madame Ratignolle, more careful of her complexion, had twined a gauze veil about her head, she wore dogskin gloves with gauntlets that protected her wrists. She was dressed in pure white with the fluffiness of ruffles that became her. The draperies and fluttering things which she wore suited her rich, luxuriant beauty, as a greater severity of line could not have done. There were a number of bath-houses along the beach, of rough but solid construction, built with small protecting galleries facing the water. Each house consisted of two compartments, and each family at Le Brun's possessed a compartment for itself, fitted out with all the essential paraphernalia of the bath, and whatever other conveniences the owners might desire. The two women had no intention of bathing, they had just strolled down to the beach for a walk, and to be alone, and near the water. The Pontellier and Ratignolle compartments adjoined one another under the same roof mrs pontellier had brought down her key through force of habit unlocking the door of her bath-house she went inside and soon emerged bringing a rug which she spread upon the floor of the gallery and two huge hair pillows covered with crash which she placed against the front of the building the two seated themselves there in the shade of the porch side by side with their backs against the pillows and their feet extended madame ratignolle removed her veil wiped her face with a rather delicate handkerchief and fanned herself with the fan which she always carried suspended somewhere about her person by a long, narrow ribbon. Edna removed her collar and opened her dress at the throat. She took the fan from Madame Ratignolle and began to fan both herself and her companion. It was very warm, and for a while they did nothing but exchange remarks about the heat, the sun, the glare. But there was a breeze blowing, a choppy, stiff wind, that whipped the water into froth, it fluttered the skirts of the two women and kept them for a while engaged in adjusting readjusting tucking in securing hairpins and hatpins a few persons were sporting some distance away in the water the beach was very still of human sound at that hour the lady in black was reading her morning devotions on the porch of a neighboring bath-house Two young lovers were exchanging their hearts' yearnings beneath the children's tent, which they had found unoccupied. Edna Pontellier, casting her eyes about, had finally kept them at rest upon the sea. The day was clear, and carried the gaze out as far as the blue sky went. There were a few white clouds suspended idly over the horizon. A latine sail was visible in the direction of Cat Island, and others to the south seemed almost motionless in the far distance. "'Of whom—of what are you thinking?' asked Adèle of her companion, whose countenance she had been watching with a little amused attention, arrested by the absorbed expression which seemed to have seized and fixed every feature into a statuesque repose. "'Nothing,' returned Mrs. Pontellier, with a start, adding at once, "'How stupid! "'But it seems to me it is the reply we make instinctively "'to such a question. Uh, "'Let me see,' she went on, "'throwing back her head and narrowing her fine eyes "'till they shone like two vivid points of light. "'Let me see. "'I was really not conscious of thinking of anything, "'but perhaps I can retrace my thoughts.' "'Oh, never mind!' laughed Madame Ratignolle. "'I am not quite so exacting.' I will let you off this time. It is really too hot to think, especially to think about thinking. But for the fun of it, persisted Edna. First of all, the sight of the water stretching so far, those motionless sails against the blue sky, made a delicious picture that I just wanted to sit and look at. The hot wind beating in my face made me think, without any connection that I can trace, of a summer day in Kentucky, of a meadow that seemed as big as the ocean to the very little girl walking through the grass, which was higher than her waist. She threw out her arms as if swimming when she walked, beating the tall grass as one strikes out in the water. Oh, I see the connection now. Where were you going that day in Kentucky, walking through the grass? I don't remember now. I was just walking, diagonally, across a big field. My sunbonnet obscured the view. I could only see the stretch of green before me. And I felt as if I must walk on forever without coming to the end of it. I don't remember whether I was frightened or pleased. I must have been entertained." "'Likely as not it was Sunday,' she laughed, "'and I was running away from prayers, from the Presbyterian service, "'read in a spirit of gloom by my father that chills me yet to think of. "'And have you been running away from prayers ever since, ma chère?' "'asked Madame Ratignolle, amused. "'No, oh no,' Edna hastened to say. I was a little unthinking child in those days, just following a misleading impulse without question. On the contrary, during one period of my life religion took a firm hold upon me, after I was twelve, and until, until, why, I suppose until now, though I never thought much about it, just driven along by habit. But do you know, she broke off, turning her quick eyes upon Madame Ratignolle, and leaning forward a little so as to bring her face quite close to that of her companion sometimes i feel this summer as if i were walking through the green meadow again idly aimlessly unthinking and unguided madame Ratignolle laid her hand over that of mrs pontellier which was near her seeing that the hand was not withdrawn she clasped it firmly and warmly She even stroked it a little, fondly, with the other hand murmuring in an undertone, Pauvre chérie. The action was at first a little confusing to Edna, but she soon lent herself readily to the creole's gentle caress. She was not accustomed to an outward and spoken expression of affection, either in herself or in others. She and her younger sister Janet had quarrelled a good deal, through force of unfortunate habit, Her older sister, Margaret, was matronly and dignified, probably from having assumed matronly and housewifely responsibilities too early in life, their mother having died when they were quite young, Margaret was not effusive, she was practical. Edna had had an occasional girlfriend, but whether accidentally or not, they seemed to have been all of one type, the self-contained. She never realized that the reserve of her own character had much perhaps everything, to do with this. Her most intimate friend at school had been one of rather exceptional intellectual gifts, who wrote fine-sounding essays, which Edna admired and strove to imitate, and with her she talked and glowed over the English classics, and sometimes held religious and political controversies, Edna often wondered at one propensity which sometimes had inwardly disturbed her without causing any outward show or manifestation on her part. At a very early age, perhaps it was when she traversed the ocean of waving grass, she remembered that she had been passionately enamored of a dignified and sad-eyed cavalry officer who visited her father in Kentucky she could not leave his presence when he was there nor remove her eyes from his face which was something like napoleon's with a lock of black hair falling across the forehead but the cavalry officer melted imperceptibly out of her existence at another time her affections were deeply engaged by a young gentleman who visited a lady on a neighbouring plantation it was after they went to mississippi to live The young man was engaged to be married to the young lady, and they sometimes called upon Margaret, driving over of afternoons in a buggy. Edna was a little miss just merging into her teens, and the realization that she herself was nothing, nothing, nothing to the engaged young man was a bitter affliction to her, but he, too, went the way of dreams. She was a grown young woman when she was overtaken by what she supposed to be the climax of her fate. It was when the face and figure of a great tragedian began to haunt her imagination and stir her senses. The persistence of the infatuation lent it an aspect of genuineness. The hopelessness of it colored it with the lofty tones of a great passion. The picture of the tragedian stood inframed upon her desk. Anyone may possess the portrait of a tragedian without exciting suspicion or comment. This was a sinister reflection which she cherished. In the presence of others, she expressed admiration for his exalted gifts as she handed the photograph around and dwelt upon the fidelity of the likeness. When alone, she sometimes picked it up and kissed the cold glass passionately. Her marriage to Léonce Pontellier was purely an accident, in this respect resembling many other marriages which masquerade as the decrees of fate. It was in the midst of her secret great passion that she met him. He fell in love, as men are in the habit of doing, and pressed his suit with an earnestness and an ardor which left nothing to be desired. He pleased her. His absolute devotion flattered her. She fancied there was a sympathy of thought and taste between them, in which fancy she was mistaken. Add to this the violent opposition of her father and her sister Margaret to her marriage with a Catholic, and we need seek no further for the motives which led her to accept Monsieur Pontellier for her husband. The acme of bliss, which would have been a marriage with the Tragedian, was not for her in this world. As the devoted wife of a man who worshipped her, she felt she could take her place with a certain dignity in the world of reality, closing the portals forever behind her upon the realm of romance and dreams. But it was not long before the tragedian had gone to join the cavalry officer and the engaged young man, and a few others, and Edna found herself face to face with the realities She grew fond of her husband, realizing, with some unaccountable satisfaction, that no trace of passion or excessive or fictitious warmth colored her affection, thereby threatening its disillusion. She was fond of her children in an uneven, impulsive way. She would sometimes gather them passionately to her heart. She would sometimes forget them. The year before, they had spent part of the summer with their grandmother Pontellier in Iberville. Feeling secure regarding their happiness and welfare, she did not miss them, except with an occasional intense longing. Their absence was a sort of relief, though she did not admit this, even to herself. It seemed to free her of a responsibility which she had blindly assumed, and for which fate had not fitted her. Edna did not reveal so much as all this to Madame Ratignolle. "'that summer day, when they sat with faces turned to the sea, "'but a good part of it escaped her. "'She had put her head down on Madame Ratignolle's shoulder. "'She was flushed and felt intoxicated "'with the sound of her own voice "'and the unaccustomed taste of candour. "'It muddled her like wine, "'or like a first breath of freedom. "'There was the sound of approaching voices. "'It was Robert.' surrounded by a troop of children, searching for them. The two little Pontelliers were with him, and he carried Madame Ratignolle's little girl in his arms. There were other children beside, and two nursemaids followed, looking disagreeable and resigned. The women at once rose and began to shake out their draperies and relax their muscles. Mrs. Pontellier threw the cushions and rug into the bath-house— The children all scampered off to the awning, and they stood there in a line, gazing upon the intruding lovers, still exchanging their vows and sighs. The lovers got up, with only a silent protest, and walked slowly away somewhere else. The children possessed themselves of the tent, and Mrs. Pontellier went over to join them. Madame Ratignolle begged Robert to accompany her to the house. She complained of a cramp in her limbs, and stiffness of the joints, She leaned draggingly upon his arm as they walked. CHAPTER Eight. "'Do me a favor, Robert,' spoke the pretty woman at his side almost as soon as she and Robert had started their slow, homeward way. She looked up in his face, leaning on his arm beneath the encircling shadow of the umbrella which he had lifted. "'Granted, as many as you like.' he returned, glancing down into her eyes that were full of thoughtfulness and some speculation. I only ask for one. Let Mrs. Pontellier alone. Tiens! he exclaimed with a sudden boyish laugh. Voila que Madame Ratignolle est jalouse! Nonsense! I am in earnest. I mean what I say. Let Mrs. Pontellier alone. Why? he asked himself growing serious at his companion's solicitation. "'She is not one of us. She is not like us. She might make the unfortunate blunder of taking you seriously.' His face flushed with annoyance, and taking off his soft hat, he began to beat it impatiently against his leg as he walked. "'Why shouldn't she take me seriously?' he demanded sharply. "'Am I a comedian? A clown? A jack-in-the-box? Why shouldn't she?' "'You Krells, I have no patience with you. "'Am I always to be regarded as a feature of an amusing programme? "'I hope Mrs. Pontellier does take me seriously. "'I hope she has discernment enough to find in me something besides the blagueur. "'If I thought there was any doubt—' "'Oh, enough, Robert!' "'She broke into his heated outburst. "'You are not thinking what you are saying.' you speak with about as little reflection as we might expect from one of those children down there playing in the sand. If your attentions to any married women here were ever offered with any intention of being convincing, you would not be the gentleman we all know you to be, and you would be unfit to associate with the wives and daughters of the people who trust you, Madame Ratignolle had spoken what she believed to be the law and the gospel. The young man shrugged his shoulders impatiently. Oh, well, that isn't it, slamming his hat down vehemently upon his head. You ought to feel that such things are not flattering to say to a fellow. Should our whole intercourse consist of an exchange of compliments, ma foi? It isn't pleasant to have a woman tell you he went on, unheedingly, but breaking off suddenly. Now, if I were like Herobin, you remember Alcy Herobin, and that story of the consul's wife at Biloxi? And he related the story of Alcy Herobin and the consul's wife, and another about the tenor of the French opera, who received letters which should never have been written, and still other stories, grave and gay, until Mrs. Pontellier and her possible propensity for taking young men seriously— was apparently forgotten. Madame Ratignol, when they had regained her cottage, went in to take the hour's rest, which she considered helpful. Before leaving her, Robert begged her pardon for the impatience, he called it rudeness, with which he had received her well-meant caution. "'You make one mistake, Adèle,' he said with a light smile." "'There is no earthly possibility of Mrs. Pontellier ever taking me seriously. "'You should have warned me against taking myself seriously. "'Your advice might then have carried some weight "'and given me subject for some reflection. "'Au revoir.' "'But you look tired,' he added solicitously. "'Would you like a cup of bouillon?' "'May I stir you a toddy?' "'Let me fix you a toddy, with a drop of Angostura.' She acceded to the suggestion of bouillon, which was grateful and acceptable. He went himself to the kitchen, which was a building apart from the cottages and lying to the rear of the house, and he himself brought her the golden-brown bouillon in a dainty sevres cup, with a flaky cracker or two on the saucer. She thrust a bare white arm from the curtain, which shielded her open door, and received the cup from his hands. She told him he was a bon garçon, and she meant it. "'Robert thanked her and turned away toward the house. "'The lovers were just entering the grounds of the pension. "'They were leaning toward each other as the water oaks bent from the sea. "'There was not a particle of earth beneath their feet. "'Their heads might have been turned upside down. "'So absolutely did they tread upon blue ether. "'The lady in black, creeping behind them, "'looked a trifle paler and more jaded than usual.' There was no sign of Mrs. Pontellier and the children. Robert scanned the distance for any such apparition. They would doubtless remain away till the dinner hour. The young man ascended to his mother's room. It was situated at the top of the house, made up of odd angles and a queer sloping ceiling. Two broad dormer windows looked out toward the gulf, and as far across it as a man's eyes might reach. The furnishings of the room were light, cool, and practical madame lebrun was busily engaged at the sewing-machine a little black girl sat on the floor and with her hands worked the treadle of the machine the creole woman does not take any chances which may be avoided of imperiling her health robert went over and seated himself on the broad sill of one of the dormer windows he took a book from his pocket and began energetically to read it judging by the precision and frequency with which he turned the leaves the sewing-machine made a resounding clatter in the room it was of a ponderous, bygone make. In the lulls, Robert and his mother exchanged bits of desultory conversation. Where is Mrs. Pontellier? Down at the beach with the children. I promised to lend her the concours. Don't forget to take it down when you go. It is there on the bookshelf over the small table. Clatter, 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 bang, for the next five or eight minutes. Where is Victor going with the Rockaway? The Rockaway? Victor? "'Yes, down there in front. "'He seems to be getting ready to drive away somewhere.' "'Call him!' clatter-clatter. "'Robert uttered a shrill, piercing whistle "'which might have been heard back at the wharf. "'He won't look up.' "'Madame Lebrun flew to the window. "'She called, "'Victor!' "'She waved a handkerchief and called again. "'The young fellow below got into the vehicle "'and started the horse off at a gallop. "'Madame Lebrun went back to the machine, "'crimson with annoyance.' Victor was the younger son and brother, a tête with a temper which invited violence and a will which no axe could break. Whenever you say the word, I'm ready to thrash any amount of reason into him that he's able to hold. If your father had only lived, clatter, 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 bang. It was the fixed belief of Madame Lebrun that the conduct of the universe and all things pertaining thereto would have been manifestly of a more intelligent and higher order had not Monsieur Lebrun been removed to other spheres during the early years of their married life. What do you hear from Montel? Montel was a middle-aged gentleman whose vain ambition and desire for the past twenty years had been to fill the void which monsieur Lebrun's taking off had left in the lebrun household clatter clatter bang clatter i have a letter somewhere looking in the machine drawer and finding the letter in the bottom of the work basket he says to tell you he will be in veracruz the beginning of next month clatter clatter and if you still have the intention of joining him bang clatter clatter bang why didn't you tell me so before mother you know i wanted clatter 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 do you see mrs pontellier coming back with the children she will be in late to luncheon again she never starts to get ready for luncheon until the last minute clatter clatter where are you going where did you say the goncourt was chapter nine every light in the hall was ablaze every lamp turned as high as it could be without smoking the chimney or threatening explosion The lamps were fixed at intervals against the wall, encircling the whole room. Someone had gathered orange and lemon branches, and with these fashioned graceful festoons between. The dark green of the branches stood out and glistened against the white, muslin curtains which draped the windows and which puffed, floated, and flapped at the capricious will of a stiff breeze that swept up from the gulf. It was Saturday night, and a few weeks after the intimate conversation held between Robert and Madame Ratignolle on their way from the beach. An unusual number of husbands, fathers, and friends had come down to stay over Sunday, and they were being suitably entertained by their families with the material help of Madame Lubron. The dining-tables had all been removed to one end of the hall, and the chairs ranged about in rows and in clusters each little family group had had its say and exchanged its domestic gossip earlier in the evening there was now an apparent disposition to relax to widen the circle of confidences and give a more general tone to the conversation many of the children had been permitted to stay up beyond their usual bedtime a small band of them were lying on their stomachs on the floor looking at the colored sheets of the comic papers which mr pontellier had brought down the little Pontellier boys were permitting them to do so and making their authority felt. Music, dancing, and a recitation or two were the entertainments furnished, or rather offered, but there was nothing systematic about the program, no appearance of prearrangement, nor even premeditation. At an early hour in the evening, the Farival twins were prevailed upon to play the piano. They were girls of fourteen always clad in the Virgin's colors, blue and white, having been dedicated to the Blessed Virgin at their baptism. They played a duet from Zampa, and at the earnest solicitation of everyone present, followed it with the overture to The Poet and the Peasant. "'Allez-vous-en, sapristi!" shrieked the parrot outside the door. He was the only being present who possessed sufficient candor to admit that he was not listening to these gracious performances for the first time that summer." Old Monsieur Farrival, grandfather of the twins, grew indignant over the interruption, and insisted upon having the bird removed and consigned to regions of darkness. Victor Lebrun objected, and his decrees were as immutable as those of fate. The parrot, fortunately, offered no further interruption to the entertainment, the whole venom of his nature apparently having been cherished up and hurled against the twins in that one impetuous outburst. Later, a young brother and sister gave recitations, which everyone present had heard many times at winter evening entertainments in the city. A little girl performed a skirt dance in the center of the floor. The mother played her accompaniments and at the same time watched her daughter with greedy admiration and nervous apprehension. She need have had no apprehension. The child was mistress of the situation. She had been properly dressed for the occasion in black tulle and black silk tights. Her little neck and arms were bare, and her hair, artificially crimped, stood out like fluffy black plumes over her head. Her poses were full of grace, and her little black-shod toes twinkled as they shot out and upward, with a rapidity and suddenness which were bewildering. But there was no reason why everyone should not dance. Madame Ratignolle could not, so it was she who gaily consented to play for the others. She played very well, keeping excellent waltz time and infusing an expression into the strains which was indeed inspiring. She was keeping up her music on account of the children, she said, because she and her husband both considered it a means of brightening the home and making it attractive. Almost everyone danced but the twins, who could not be induced to separate during the brief period when one or the other should be whirling about the room in the arms of a man. They might have danced together, but they did not think of it. The children were sent to bed, some went submissively, others with shrieks and protests as they were dragged away. They had been permitted to sit up till after the ice cream, which naturally marked the limit of human indulgence. The ice cream was passed round with cake, gold and silver cake arranged on platters in alternate slices. It had been made and frozen during the afternoon back in the kitchen by two black women under the supervision of Victor. It was pronounced a great success, excellent, if it had only contained a little less vanilla, or a little more sugar, if it had been frozen a degree harder, and if the salt might have been kept out of portions of it. Victor was proud of his achievement, and went about recommending it and urging everyone to partake of it to excess. After Mrs. Pontellier had danced twice with her husband, once with Robert, and once with Monsieur Ratignolle, who was thin and tall and swayed like a reed in the wind when he danced, she went out on the gallery and seated herself on the low window sill, where she commanded a view of all that went on in the hall and could look out toward the gulf. There was a soft effulgence in the east. The moon was coming up, and its mystic shimmer was casting a million lights across the distant, restless water. "'Would you like to hear Mademoiselle Rhy's play?' asked Robert, coming out on the porch where she was. "'Of course Edna would like to hear Mademoiselle Reese play,' but she feared it would be useless to entreat her. "'I'll ask her,' he said. "'I'll tell her that you want to hear her. She likes you. She will come.' He turned and hurried away to one of the far cottages, where Mademoiselle Rhys was shuffling away. She was dragging a chair in and out of her room, and at intervals objecting to the crying of a baby which a nurse in the adjoining cottage was endeavouring to put to sleep. She was a disagreeable little woman, no longer young, who had quarrelled with almost everyone, owing to a temper which was self-assertive and a disposition to trample upon the rights of others. Robert prevailed upon her without any too great difficulty. She entered the hall with him during a lull in the dance. She made an awkward, imperious little bow as she went in. She was a homely woman with a small, wizened face and body and eyes that glowed. She had absolutely no taste in dress and wore a batch of rusty black lace with a bunch of artificial violets pinned to the side of her hair ask mrs pontellier what she would like to hear me play she requested of robert she sat perfectly still before the piano not touching the keys while robert carried her message to edna at the window a general air of surprise and genuine satisfaction fell upon everyone as they saw the pianist enter there was a settling down and a prevailing air of expectancy everywhere Edna was a trifle embarrassed at being thus singled out for the imperious little woman's favor. She would not dare to choose, and begged that Mademoiselle Rhys would please herself in her selections. Edna was what she herself called very fond of music. Musical strains, well rendered, had a way of evoking pictures in her mind. She sometimes liked to sit in the room of mornings when Madame Ratignolle played or practiced, one piece which that lady played Edna had entitled Solitude. It was a short, plaintive, minor strain. The name of the piece was something else, but she called it Solitude. When she heard it, there came before her imagination the figure of a man standing beside a desolate rock on the seashore. He was naked. His attitude was one of hopeless resignation as he looked toward a distant bird winging its flight away from him. Another piece called to her mind a dainty young woman, clad in an empire gown, taking mincing dancing steps as she came down a long avenue between tall hedges. Again another reminded her of children at play, and still another of nothing on earth but a demure lady stroking a cat. The very first chords which Mademoiselle Rhys struck upon the piano sent a keen tremor down Mrs. Pontellier's spinal column. It was not the first time she had heard an artist at the piano. Perhaps it was the first time she was ready, perhaps the first time her being was tempered to take an impress of the abiding truth. She waited for the material pictures which she thought would gather and blaze before her imagination. She waited in vain. She saw no pictures of solitude, of hope, of longing, or of despair. But the very passions themselves were aroused within her soul, swaying it, lashing it, as the waves daily beat upon her splendid body. She trembled. She was choking and the tears blinded her. Mademoiselle had finished. She arose, and bowing her stiff, lofty bow, she went away, stopping for neither thanks nor applause. As she passed along the gallery, she patted Edna upon the shoulder. Well, how did you like my music? she asked. The young woman was unable to answer. She pressed the hand of the pianist convulsively. Mademoiselle Rhys perceived her agitation, and even her tears. She patted her again upon the shoulder, as she said, "'You are the only one worth playing for.' "'Those others? Bah!' And she went shuffling and sidling on down the gallery toward her room. But she was mistaken about those others. Her playing had aroused a fever of enthusiasm. "'What passion!' What an artist! I've always said no one could play Chopin like Mademoiselle Rhys That last prelude, bon Dieu, it shakes a man. It was growing late, and there was a general disposition to disband, but someone, perhaps it was Robert, thought of a bath at that mystic hour and under that mystic moon. Chapter 10 At all events, Robert proposed it, and there was not a dissenting voice. There was not one but was ready to follow when he led the way. He did not lead the way, however. He directed the way, and he himself loitered behind with the lovers who had betrayed a disposition to linger and hold themselves apart. He walked between them, whether with malicious or mischievous intent was not wholly clear, even to himself. The Pontelliers and Ratignolles walked ahead, the women leaning upon the arms of their husbands. Edna could hear Robert's voice behind them, and could sometimes hear what he said. She wondered why he did not join them. It was unlike him not to. Of late, he had sometimes held away from her for an entire day, redoubling his devotion upon the next and the next, as though to make up for hours that had been lost. She missed him the days when some pretext served to take him away from her, just as one misses the sun on a cloudy day without having thought much about the sun when it was shining. The people walked in little groups toward the beach. They talked and laughed, some of them sang. There was a band playing down at Klein's Hotel, and the strains reached them faintly, tempered by the distance. There were strange, rare odors abroad, a tangle of the sea-smell and of weeds and damp, new-ploughed earth, mingled with the heavy perfume of a field of white blossoms somewhere near. But the night sat lightly upon the sea and the land. There was no weight of darkness, there were no shadows. The white light of the moon had fallen upon the world like the mystery and the softness of sleep. Most of them walked into the water as though into a native element. The sea was quiet now, and swelled lazily in broad billows that melted into one another and did not break, except upon the beach, in little foamy crests that coiled back like slow white serpents. Edna had attempted all summer to learn to swim. She had received instructions from both the men and women. In some instances from the children. Robert had pursued a system of lessons almost daily, and he was nearly at the point of discouragement in realizing the futility of his efforts. A certain ungovernable dread hung about her when in the water, unless there was a hand near by that might reach out and reassure her. But that night she was like the little tottering, stumbling, clutching child who of a sudden realizes its power and walks, for the first time, alone, boldly and with overconfidence. She could have shouted for joy. She did shout for joy, as with a sweeping stroke or two she lifted her body to the surface of the water. A feeling of exultation overtook her, as if some power of significant import had been given her to control the working of her body, and her soul she grew daring and reckless overestimating her strength she wanted to swim far out where no woman had swum before her unlooked-for achievement was the subject of wonder applause and admiration each one congratulated himself that his special teachings had accomplished this desired end how easy it is she thought it is nothing she said aloud why did i not discover before that it was nothing think of the time i have lost splashing about like a baby she would not join the groups in their sports and bouts but intoxicated with her newly conquered power she swam out alone she turned her face seaward to gather in an impression of space and solitude which the vast expanse of water meeting and melting with the moonlit sky conveyed to her excited fancy as she swam she seemed to be reaching out for the unlimited in which to lose herself once she turned and looked toward the shore toward the people she had left there she had not gone any great distance that is what would have been a great distance for an experienced swimmer. But to her unaccustomed vision, the stretch of water behind her assumed the aspect of a barrier which her unaided strength would never be able to overcome. A quick vision of death smote her soul, and for a second of time appalled and enfeebled her senses. But by an effort she rallied her staggering faculties and managed to regain the land she made no mention of her encounter with death and her flash of terror, except to say to her husband, I thought I should have perished out there, alone. You are not so very far, my dear. I was watching you, he told her. Edna went at once to the bathhouse, and she had put on her dry clothes and was ready to return home before the others had left the water. She started to walk away, alone. They all called to her and shouted to her, She waved a dissenting hand and went on, paying no further heed to their renewed cries which sought to detain her. "'Sometimes I am tempted to think that Mrs. Pontellier is capricious,' said Madame Lupron, who was amusing herself immensely and feared that Edna's abrupt departure might put an end to the pleasure. "'I know she is,' assented Mr. Pontellier. "'Sometimes, not often.' Edna had not traversed a quarter of the distance on her way home before she was overtaken by Robert. Did you think I was afraid? she asked him, without a shade of annoyance. No, I knew you weren't afraid. Then why did you come? Why didn't you stay out there with the others? I never thought of it. Thought of what? Of anything. What difference does it make? I'm very tired, she uttered complainingly. "'I know you are. You don't know anything about it. Why should you know? I never was so exhausted in my life. But it isn't unpleasant. A thousand emotions have swept through me tonight. I don't comprehend half of them. Don't mind what I'm saying. I'm just thinking aloud.' "'I wonder if I shall ever be stirred again "'as Mademoiselle Reese's playing moved me tonight. "'I wonder if any night on earth will ever again be like this one. "'It is like a night in a dream. "'The people about me are like some uncanny, half-human beings. "'There must be spirits abroad tonight. "'There are,' whispered Robert.' Didn't you know this was the 28th of August? The 28th of August? Yes, on the 28th of August, at the hour of midnight, and if the moon is shining, the moon must be shining, a spirit that has haunted these shores for ages rises up from the gulf. With its own penetrating vision, the spirit seeks some one mortal, worthy to hold him company worthy of being exalted for a few hours into realms of the semi-celestials. His search has always hitherto been fruitless, and he has sunk back, disheartened, into the sea. But tonight he found Mrs. Pontellier. Perhaps he will never wholly release her from the spell, Perhaps she will never again suffer a poor, unworthy earthling to walk in the shadow of her divine presence. "'Don't banter me,' she said, wounded at what appeared to be his flippancy. He did not mind the entreaty, but the tone, with its delicate note of pathos, was like a reproach. He could not explain— he could not tell her that he had penetrated her mood, and understood. He said nothing except to offer her his arm, for, by her own admission, she was exhausted. She had been walking alone, with her arms hanging limp, letting her white skirts trail along the dewy path. She took his arm, but she did not lean upon it. She let her hand lie listlessly, as though her thoughts were elsewhere, somewhere in advance of her body, and she was striving to overtake them. Robert assisted her into the hammock, which swung from the post before her door out to the trunk of a tree. "'Will you stay out here and wait for Mr. Pontellier?' he asked. "'I'll stay out here. Good night.' "'Shall I get you a pillow?' "'There's one here,' she said, feeling about, for they were in the shadow.' It must be soiled, the children have been tumbling it about. No matter. And having discovered the pillow, she adjusted it beneath her head. She extended herself into the hammock with a deep breath of relief. She was not a supercilious or an over-dainty woman. She was not much given to reclining in the hammock, and when she did so, it was with no cat-like suggestion of voluptuous ease, but with a beneficent repose which seemed to invade her whole body. Shall I stay with you till Mr. Pontellier comes? asked Robert, seating himself on the outer edge of one of the steps and taking hold of the hammock rope which was fastened to the post. If you wish, don't swing the hammock. Will you get my white shawl, which I left on the window sill at the house? Are you chilly? No, but I shall be presently. Presently? he laughed. Do you know what time it is? How long are you going to stay out here? I don't know. Will you get the shawl? Of course I will, he said, rising. He went over to the house, walking along the grass. She watched his figure pass in and out of the strips of moonlight. It was past midnight. It was very quiet. When he returned with the shawl, she took it and kept it in her hand. She did not put it around her did you say i should stay till mr pontellier came back i said you might if you wished to he seated himself again and rolled a cigarette which he smoked in silence neither did mrs pontellier speak no multitude of words could have been more significant than those moments of silence or more pregnant with the first felt throbbings of desire when the voices of the bathers were heard approaching Robert said good-night. She did not answer him. He thought she was asleep. Again she watched his figure pass in and out of the strips of moonlight as he walked away. End of chapter 10